1 Samuel 27, and this is the word of God. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. And then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Malak, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given to me in one of the country towns, that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag, and therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. And when Achish asked, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, Oh, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeremelites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, So David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines, and Achish trusted David, thinking, He has made himself another stench to his people Israel. Therefore he shall always be my servant. In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel, and Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well. You shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Amen. And we thank God for his word. And we pray for his help as we get into this passage later on tonight. Don't know how often in your weekly life do you dress up. Now we all put on clothes every morning, that's not what I mean. But when was the last time you dressed up as your hero? When was the last time, for example, you went to work dressed like Ian Paisley, uh, or you went to work dressed like Theresa May, or whoever it is that you think is the bee's knees? Well, I was reading recently, a, a school had to send a letter home to the parents of the children, basically sucking any of the joy out of dressing up. And I like dressing up as much as the next man, I really do. Because the school was concerned that, that on this annual occasion, where all the kids would come to school dressed up as their hero, that they weren't being realistic. You're getting all these kids coming to school, and, ah, oh, who are you, Mary? Well, I'm Mother Teresa. She's my hero. Ah, oh, that's brilliant. What about you? Well, I'm Donald Trump. He's my hero. Well, what about you? Oh, I'm, I'm David Beckham. He's my hero. And school, this concerned the school. 
because I thought this was desperately unrealistic. And that is even before they got to the kids who came dressed as unicorns and mermaids and everything else. These things, it's, it's just unrealistic. So the school at this dressing up day where, where they wanted the kids to come dressed as their hero, who they wanted to be like when they grew up, and the school said this year, instead of coming dressed as Mother Teresa, Donald Trump, or you know whoever is your hero, we want your children to be realistic. The letter's not there, by the way. That's, that's just my hand. We want your children to be realistic. We want them coming to be dressed as their plan B. What does the school mean by that? Well, your child's not going to grow up to be the President of the United States. Wise up. He's from Drummond That's not going to happen. So instead of coming as Donald Trump, come as a plan B. Come dressed as a, as a policeman or a farmer or a school teacher or a minister or whatever it might be, a, a plan B. In other words, says the school, your child is basically no hope of that stuff, so get them to come as the stuff that they might be able to do. They need us to say the parents went mental, as they often do. There's many teachers in here tonight that maybe have experienced mental parents. I am a teacher too. I teach for an hour every Tuesday up at the school, and, and I know European teachers. We deserve July and August and Halloween and Christmas and half term uh, and we days off when people go and vote. We deserve those days. So the parents weren't happy. The school thought they were doing a good turn to get into the papers. Everybody says it's mental, it's daft. And it made me smile because I have a bit of sympathy on that. Probably your child isn't going to be a prime minister one day. This notion that you can be whatever you want to be is, is absurd, really, on the face of it. But it's that notion of having a plan B that I want to get to tonight. Because plan A, often in life, doesn't happen. Plan A sometimes just always escapes us. Plan A, you know what it is, we... You know, I want to be married by the time I'm 21. By the time I'm 22, I want to have my six children churned out and get that side of things sorted. By the time I'm 24, I want to sell my business and make an absolute fortune. By the time I'm 30, I'm retiring. By the time I'm 40, you know what it's like. How many of you actually manage to do your plan A? And gentlemen, this is where tonight you go home and get brownie points sponsored by your handsome young minister here. You go home tonight and say to your good lady, you've always been my plan A. You tell her that. She will love you for a long time uh, if you say that to her. But most of us don't get that plan A, do we? And certainly when it comes to David's life, plan A is not there. Last time we were here, we talked about chapter 26, where David goes and, and shouting from one hill into Saul's camp, he's basically saying, Saul, why, why are you doing this? not out to get you. You're the king. I, I don't want to to harm you. I'm on your side. I want to worship the Lord again. I want to get back to Jerusalem. What are you doing this for? And Saul says, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm going to stop. I'll not do it anymore. I'm not. David wants a normal life. David's hope and plan A is that, that he can live and, uh, and work and play and sing and dance and do all those wonderful things. And yes, one day take the throne, but not yet. Not at the expense of Saul. He doesn't want to constantly be on the run always looking over his shoulder. And you think by the end of chapter 26, well, well, it seems that David's plan A is coming into place. Verse 25, Saul says to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. And so David went in his way and Saul returned to his place. And you think, happy days. Story ends. Plan A, David's happy. Everybody's happy. 
there's peace in Israel, wonderful news. But look at chapter 27. The very first verse, David says, In his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. David knows in his gut, in his heart, and that's not that you should spend your life trusting your heart. That's a nonsense. The heart is deceitful. But David in his spirit knows Saul is never going to give me peace. This situation in my life, it, it isn't coming to an end anytime soon. And, and there's the point. There's the point where you say, well, David, what comes next? Plan A is not going to happen. You, you know, you're 68 and you haven't met the woman of your dreams yet. You haven't had your 17 children. You haven't got your dream job. All those things that you thought would be in place by this stage in your life, they're not here. And there's that moment that often comes for a David, for me, for you. Well, what comes next? What is plan B? Unfortunately, David's plan B, in my opinion, is not what his plan B should have been. See, David decides, in light of the fact that Saul is never going to give him peace, that the only place where he will find rest is in the land of the Philistines. The only place that David can lay his head is, is outside the borders of Israel in the land of the enemy. Folks, we read here about how David in verse 2 arises and went over. And I think that is deliberate language that points us to the fact that David crosses a line. Yes, the plan A, it seems, is not going to come to fruition, but David chasing peace and plan B, well, he literally crosses the line in the enemy territory. And this is a controversial passage. If you read anything uh, about this chapter, you will read divided opinion on it. Some will say, well, David's been very practical here, and David's been very wise. Saul's never going to give him rest, and so he needs to, to go and find a place to lay his hat. His hat. Uh, others will say, no, David, David is being foolish here. He's crossing the line into the, the territory of his enemy. And others sort of sit in the fence and are sympathetic to David and, and are a wee bit harsh with him on the other side and say, well, you know, I see it both ways. Folks, I think as I read through this passage, I, I don't believe that we're to look at this and, and just say, well, it's David. He can do whatever he wants. You see, although David's plan A has not come to fruition, as we read through the story of David and Saul, Saul doesn't lay a hand upon him. David knows that the Lord is going to keep him and preserve him. Saul never seems to manage to get his hands on David. He doesn't get to sneak up behind him and cut a wee bit off his cloak. Saul doesn't sneak into David's camp and, and could spear him to the ground. That's all turned round. Those things happen to Saul. And so you would think in David's life he should know. I may never get any peace from Saul, but the Lord is for me, and therefore I will not be afraid. It's exactly this sort of thing that David says in the 37th Psalm in verse 5. He urges us, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. See, folks, when it comes to those moments in life where our plans are falling down around our ears, 
and we think, well, what comes next? It's, it's that wee moment where I think we, we see our faith. Often we rush headlong into action. Plan A isn't going to happen, so I will sort this out myself. I will put in place plan B and, and plan C and plan D, whatever. I will sort it out. And yet I think it is in those moments that we need to take the Word of God as the Word of God as we read in this psalm and say, look, we, we commit our ways to the Lord. We trust in Him. He is the actor on our behalf. But you see, that doesn't happen. In chapter 27, David doesn't take his advice. And of course, we, we don't know when David writes Psalm 37 and a lot of the other psalms. Maybe it comes after this incident. But here as plan A falls down around his ears, David acts on David's behalf and David crosses the line. And as David does that, as you read through this difficult passage, then some things I think will jump out at you. Firstly, there is no mention of God in this passage. It's one of those parts of the Bible where we do not meet the Lord. And of course, all Scripture is God-breathed, and we see God moving behind the scenes in every part of Scripture. But he is not referenced here. David does not seek him. We see in the last chapters that David does that quite a bit. Saul is the one who doesn't seek the Lord. David is the one who constantly is seeking the Lord's counsel. Not here. God is not mentioned. David crosses over, he takes his men with him, and he goes to find refuge in the hands of Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. He goes and says to the enemy, Will you look after me? Will you give me somewhere to lay my hat? Will you let me be here for a while? And folks, that cannot be understated, the significance of that, I think. We are led to believe in the scriptures here that that, that, is not, that is not a positive thing. David was there with all his family. We're, we're told that. 600 men were with him. They had their house with them too. Off they go to this place, the place of the enemy, and, and they stay there for 16 months. David is in the hands of the enemy of God's people. And as we read this with no mention of the Lord, and as we see how it all plays out, I think we are to look at David with, with critical eyes. We are to look at this passage and say, well, do you know, we know this guy's heart. We know it was a, a heart after the Lord. David loved the Lord. David longed to worship once again. We know those things to be true, but in this instance, he shouldn't have been on the side of the line that he chose. You see, as... He goes and throws his lot in with the enemy. He is forced into compromise. The plan B that is engineered by David is, is a plan that forces him to not exactly always be 100% accurate with the truth. See, David goes to King Achish and he gets a place to dwell, a place called Ziklag. And the kings of Judah, we are told in this passage, have that place to this very day. And the number of the days, verse 7, that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. And how would you spend a year and four months? Maybe you would finally get to take up painting as you'd always wished. Maybe you would be baking like Mary Berry or Paul Hollywood or someone. What did David do? Well, he spent his days reading. Verse 8, David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites the Gerzites and the Amalekites, 
For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur to the land of Egypt. And so again, you stop there because actually what David is doing is something that God has commanded. What David is doing as he raids these individuals is he, he is raiding the enemy of God. David uh, tell, or is carrying out what God has commanded already in his word. In 1 Samuel 15, the Lord of hosts says, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spur them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. The Lord has commanded that. The Lord is pouring out his judgment upon the individuals who lived in this region. And it is a difficult thing when we consider that. The scriptures have often been criticized of, of God commanded genocide and incidents like this. And we wonder, well, how can God command this? How can David carry this out? Well, we see in Deuteronomy 9, verses 4 to 5. God says to his people, do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust these people out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has given us this land. It is not because of your righteousness, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Folks, this sermon tonight is not about that whole incident and about this holy war that the Lord has commanded, but let me simply say this. What we see here as, as David raids these enemies, yes, under a bit of a deception, and we'll talk about that more in a wee second. What we see here as David does this is David is carrying out the judgment of God upon those who have no regard for God. And we have no right to do this anymore. This was a time and place in the history of the church when the church was located to a, a nation state called Israel. They were to drive out the enemies of God. They had sinned mightily against the Lord. He was pouring out his judgment upon them. And it was the Lord who commanded this destruction. To say anything else is to do an injustice to the scriptures. But we should wrestle with it. I really do believe that because it is not easy. David goes, and in order for his deception to stay intact, he kills everything. Yes, we can say, well, he's, he's carrying out the will of God, and that is true. But as we read this passage, it seems that David is doing it almost just to give himself a little bit of cover as he spends these months with Achish. I don't think we can read this passage and and see David as this wonderfully noble, great guy of faith, because I think in this instance, his plan B is a plan that never should have been enacted. Folks, let me just say, finally, on that whole judgment side of things, this morning as we preached from the book of Micah, we, we considered there that the Lord is coming. And we talked about how the Lord is coming in judgment, and and Micah, in a very vivid picture, says the mountains will melt before him like candles. It'll, it'll just collapse before him. And you know, the reality is that, that when we read of passages, passages like this, where the Lord pours out his judgment upon man, woman, child, and animal, it gives us a little glimpse to the terror and the horror of the judgment to come. Well, folks, I do not say that lightly. But I do say it so that we would take these things seriously. 
often when we consider the holiness of God, well, we think, well, he's not that holy and I'm not that sinful. Actually, the reality is that he is incredibly holy, supremely holy, perfectly holy. And you and I, once lost, were utterly depraved in our sin. Folks, tonight I know most people who like to come to evening worship are probably on the same team. Probably we all know and love the Lord. I pray indeed that that would be the case. But if it is not tonight, then understand that a glimpse of judgment that you see in David's life here as God pours it out upon these unknown Geshurites and Gerzites and Amalekites, that is a little glimpse in the judgment that is to come. And in the book of Revelation, we have this awesome scene where the great and the good of that final day call upon the mountains to fall upon them rather than to face the wrath of God. Folks, please understand that if you're not in Christ tonight. Please understand that the day of judgment is not going to be this difficult, awkward day where at the end everybody sits down and has a wee drink together and a wee sandwich and gets on with eternity. That's not how it's going to be. A day of reckoning is coming. And the horror, I think, of all these individuals being killed by David and his men, even though it is under the command of God, I think should cause us to pause and tremble at the news that the Lord is on his way. But David, even though you could make that case that he is carrying out the will of God, we see where a man-ordered and centered plan B gets him. Because when David comes back from his work, from back from raiding the enemies of God's people and destroying everyone and everything he finds, when David comes back, his buddy, his patron, Achish, asks him in verse 10, where have you made a raid today? And they're almost like this lovely wee couple. It's, it's like when you come home from, from work, hopefully your loved one will say, where, where have you made a raid today? You'll get the Salem, well, I was, was in St. Field. Rub those posh people's face in at the day, love. You want to see what I got up to today in St. Phil? It's a bit like that. David comes home and, and over supper, they sit down around the table and just before Coronation Street comes on, Aki says, where have you made a raid today? And in order to cover his back, because he can't be honest, because this is all a bit of a deception, he's in the land of his enemy, he's keeping his head down just in case, he's getting his head shard just in case, he says, oh, well, I, I was against the Negev, the, the wilderness of Judah, or went up to the wilderness of the Jeremites, or against the, the wilderness of the Kenites, or in other words, I, I was up raiding Israel. I was up doing bits and pieces up there. Okay, don't, don't you worry about it. Any more of the, the cheesecake? Well, let's have cheesecake and we'll just forget about it. And, and David's plan B gets him to that place where to keep it intact and to cover it up, he is forced to tell we white lie is forced to be someone who you know can't be absolutely 100% clear and true and right folks as we look at this passage I think that that is what we are led to see that this crossing over to this plan B that wasn't the Lord's plan B and even though this plan B seemed to work I don't think David should have been in this plan B. And you see, the plan, as I've said, is actually successful because Saul, we're told, stops chasing him. Verse 4 says, when, 
when Saul heard that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. So, so imagine that in your own life. You have acted on your own behalf. You have believed, well, I need to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to sort this out. And actually, it seems to work. And it seems to get you to a place of peace and rest and tranquility where we're sitting waiting on the Lord wasn't getting it done. It seems like that in David's case. But again, David is forced to, to keep the head down. He's forced to kind of spoof. And in fact, it gets... He does it so well that it gets to a point where Achish thinks, David's on my team. Verse 12, Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. And as you get into chapter 28, Achish is getting all his, his fighters ready to go and fight the Israelites. And he says to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David has done such a good job of deceiving this foreign king that the foreign king says, you're on my team now. We're going to fight your old people. You're with me, aren't you? And David, in kind of an ambiguous kind of way, says, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. Do you see that? David doesn't necessarily let his yes be yes and his no be no. Instead, he, he says to this foreign king, yeah, you'll, you'll see what I can do, king. And we will see what David can do. David's not going to be this loyal follower of Achish. But friends, the point I'm trying to make is when we follow these paths that aren't necessarily the paths that the Lord has laid before us, it can bring us to a place of compromise, a place where we have to not always be 100% true, a place where we can't always say what actually we're thinking and feeling, a place where we have to sort of nod and wink and try and keep our head above water, and it is utterly exhausting. God is not honored in relationships like this where Akish thinks, this guy's on my team. And imagine in your own circumstance, folks, you're, you're probably not going tomorrow to a foreign king and you have to let on that you're on his team. But we have it in our lives all the time. Moments where we, we know that a little bit of compromise is probably going to cause us to have an easier life. It happens in the office. It happens when we're, we, we know that you know the, the annual Christmas do, we, we stay past 11 o'clock and everybody's hammered and blitz and start singing songs you didn't sing and you're caught in situations but you don't want to go home because you don't want to be seen as that bible bashing gospel believing weirdo and that's what we're seen as often in this day and age so what happens well you develop a plan b that kind of gets you out of it but but forces you to compromise or we're in a family situation and people know that you're the christian and what happens well instead of of sharing the faith Instead of being honest with our friends and family members, we maybe turn it down a notch. A wee man made plan B because after all, it's easier for the week at the caravan at Cranfield just to, to sit and say nothing for a while and to go along to get along. But folks, as we read about David's plan B, I do not think God is honored in how David acts. And yes, as I've said, many make the case that David's pragmatic and David's been wise and, and David is showing that one day he is going to be a, a, a leader who, 
who can develop and manipulate any situation. But, but again, the Lord is not mentioned. And, and the scriptures do not say David was doing the right thing. They leave it. They let it sit there. It's, it's ambiguous. But I think we're led to a place where we consider David should never have crossed that line. David should have taken his own advice. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. And he will act friends, you know what? We are sympathetic to David. We can't imagine, I'm sure, what it is like to constantly be under pressure from all sides. Saul didn't want to meet David to play a game of Scrabble and eat donuts out of the garage and to talk about the old days. Saul wanted to kill this kid. He wanted him out of the way. And not only was Saul hunting him down, but people were lying and gossiping about David. There, there were towns and villages that were saying, Saul, we know where he is. We can point you to him. Can you imagine the mental pressure that David was under? Can you imagine the physical strain? And folks, you will know this yourself. If you've ever been in a bit of a feud with someone and you're not speaking to them and they're not speaking to you, it is exhausting to keep that going. It is horrendous to keep it going. I remember when I was in the year leading up to me coming to faith in Christ, my father and I were not speaking. And you'd sit around the dinner table or you'd sit around the living room and my dad would say to my mum, what time's Scott going to work? And I'm sitting there, he could have asked me, but he asked my mum and my mum says, I don't know. Scott, what time are you going to work? Tell my dad I'm going to work at 3 o'clock. Norman, he's going to work at 3 o'clock. Ask Scott, does he need a lift to go to work? Does he need a lift? Have you been there? Hopefully not. 37 Hollycroft wasn't the best of places at time, but have you been there in your own life? It's mentally and physically exhausting to, to be under such pressure. And that is the pressure that David is under. Constant, constant, mental, physical pressure. And he is weary. And he knows in his heart, this guy will not quit. This guy is not going to stop until he, he pins me to the ground with that spear. This guy wants my life. I'm not going to be able to rest until I get out of here. And so in such a circumstance, plan B seems absolutely right. But my brothers and sisters, even though plan B seems right, and plan B seems easy. And plan B seems to be a great success. And plan B causes you to compromise. But, well, here, do you know what? Saul's not chasing me anymore. Even though plan B seems so incredibly attractive, I'm convinced by this passage that that going over is a sin against the providence and protection of our God. Folks, at times it's exciting to take matters under your own hands. And finally we get that night's rest. And finally we get a bit of peace. And finally everything just seems in order. Do you remember how we started tonight? It is good for me that I was afflicted. That I might learn your statutes. I am not a Christian. And I suspect you are not a Christian who longs for affliction who seeks out trouble I am not a believer that wakes up every day and says I hope today is a mess 
But when affliction comes, I think we see our faith being honed. And often we go the way of plan B, but I pray more and more we will not cross the line and we will entrust ourselves in the midst of affliction, not to a foreign king, but to Lord God Almighty. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. And as we close tonight, folks, and I'm sorry, Muriel, there is no Muriel in this church, you know what I mean. Just you, Muriel, Roberta, Davy, whoever you are, I'm sorry you're, you're not getting into your jammies just yet, but we are nearly finished. I want you to know tonight that if you are in the midst of plan B, and you know it, and your life has been a life of compromise and, and going along to get along, because after all, that's the easier path, I want you to know tonight that David is not written out of the Lord's saving plan at the end of this chapter. The Lord, I am convinced, was not pleased with with how David spent these 16 months. Even though he was carrying out the will of God, he was doing it under false pretenses. And yet God is not done with David. And God is not done with the Christian who just couldn't really take it anymore and so was in the midst of plan B just to get a bit of peace. My brothers and sisters, if you know what it is to compromise, and you know what it is to take things into your own hand and do things your way. Because after all, God is not listening to my prayer. If you know what it is to be like that, then understand that it is only by grace that the Lord welcomes us. And so you are saved by grace and you remain by grace. And he meets you with grace even when you are trusting yourself or a foreign king brothers and sisters, if you, like me, are often in plan B, instead of where we should be, if you're often, like me, crossing the line instead of staying put, even in the midst of affliction, and for you and I, weary sinners who should know better, tonight, may we commit our way to the Lord, trust in Him, and know that He will act for his people, his bride, the church. Muriel, your jammies are on the radiator, love. The bacon's cooking. But before you go, remember this. If God is for us, then who can be against us? Amen. And we thank God tonight for his word.